Welcome back to Irish Illustrated Insider, brought to you by irishillustrated.com. Pete Sampson here with Tim Priester and Tim O'Malley a couple days after Nordham's 24-22 loss at Clemson, and there is a, a lot of meat on this bone, uh, guys. So, I mean, let, let's just start with the coaching decisions, because I think it's it's decisions that the staff made, not necessarily on the field of play where there are fumbles and craziness and variables and all that stuff. It's just... It's stuff that was decided on the sidelines. Brian Kelly's in charge of that. He's the face of the program. So let's start with the first two-point conversion. Go for it, not go for it. I was next to both of you in the press box, so I already know the answer to this. But, Tim, what I mean, you were saying this before the play. Yeah, and I think it's important we bring this up because Brian Kelly addressed Sunday. You know, you guys had the benefit of hindsight. That's true that everybody's been talking about. There was five of us in the same area in this press box. And as the two-point play was obviously going to happen... Pete stood, or Pete was staring at the field in disbelief. Tim put his pen down. I put my hands in my face, and two unnamed colleagues literally said, "What the hell is he doing?" So it's not second guessing in this point. And listen, this is not like Northwestern, where it was mathematically wrong. We can all prove it. There are two sides to the story. We understand why he did it. He explained why he did it post game and Sunday. Here's the problem: the th- the theory is wrong. The theory is flawed, and I, I'm afraid we'll do it again. There's 14-13 left. You say, I think we'll get three possessions. That's fine. They got four. That you, you, I would think you would get four because of using timeouts, and if you're going to come back, the game gets extended. But let's say you still get three possessions. It totally ignores the fact that Clemson is getting three possessions, and they are fully capable of, on one of those three drives, either getting a short field or putting together a five-play, 50-yard drive and kicking a field goal, which destroys your decision to get within 10 points. It's so short-sighted to go for two points when there's 14 minutes left in a game. I was driving here today trying to figure out when do you have to do it if there's 14 minutes left, and I came up with 35-3. to three. <laughs> If it's 28-3, to three, no, listen, now hear me out, just to point this out. 28-3, to three, you still... I still would kick it. You know why? It's 28-3, to, th- 28 to three, you score a touchdown, it's 28-9. to nine. You still assume they're getting a field goal, which would make it 31-9 to nine instead of 31-10. to 10. You have to extend the game, and as Pete said, I don't want to steal yours, what pressure are you putting on Clemson? By we're gonna get this X bring it this two point conversion right here and cut it to ten instead of eleven. You're not putting any on. They're still trying to score to get a field goal on you. The chart is wrong. I mean, apparently the chart says go for two, and it, it needs to be reevaluated. It, it it it's eleven points and twelve points. If you're winning, we've seen this. I know they yes. weren't the same situations right, Northwestern right, right. in this, and this one has a little bit more gray area. And as you said, yes, Pete, it does. Brian Kelly explained, and, and I understand that, but it's. It's the difference between 11 points and 12 points. If you're winning, you want to be up by 12, not 11. If you're trailing, if you're trying to get back, you want to be down by 11, not 12. I mean, that that to me is is perfectly clear. And you can say, well, but the play was open. Corey Robinson should have caught it. Then kudos for the X's and O's, but you had the wrong personnel in there. Uh, I... I understand why you would want to be down 10 if there was four minutes to go oh, in the game, yeah. if there were 14 minutes to go in the game. So the, the time and situation just seemed off to me. And also, if this, Brian Kelly said this was a clear and smart decision, if it was, you wouldn't have had Justin Yoon on the field. It was a it was a scramble to get that play together. So it didn't That's feel a like point. a very well thought out, clear and smart decision as you watch it unfold. It was just a mad dash the kicker's on the field. He's scrambling off. A bunch of other guys are scrambling off. Then you end up with 10 guys on the field for this play. You have to call a timeout. Corey Robinson comes in. He's been in a funk. I, it just, 
there there were a lot of problems with it. I actually agree with Brian Kelly in his if if his decision to go for it was like I just had a gut feeling that the weather was going to be bad and we only get three possessions. That's great. I I'm I'm totally with Kelly on that. But the way it came together, there was just not a lot of conviction and foresight into like, okay, if we score here, we're going for two. It was we score here, then like, holy crap, okay, what are we supposed to do? And it was it was a bad look. I think it's an interesting point you bring up. I was driving to the game or driving to the airport um, Friday morning, and they were reviewing the Baltimore Pittsburgh game and a decision to pass on fourth down instead of run. And Ron Jaworski wasn't talking about pass or run decision or or if the coach made the right decision. He said, of course he made the right decision. Because they made those decisions earlier in the week. When it's fourth and one, this is our play. There's no yeah. scrambling to figure things out. And Brian Kelly has between 47 and 50, he's talked about this in the past, special situations that he's touted that they cover, that they the cover in August. Yeah. One of them, and this is slightly off topic, has to be, do we ever use a timeout in a dead ball situation? They used a timeout on a PAT. Yeah. You could go for two from the eight. You can kick your extra point from the eight. You need the timeout that you can never get back. Now, you know, everybody's like, well, they didn't really need the timeout. I don't know. They could have probably used 60 more seconds when they were driving down there, right? But the point is, that wasn't covered. It wasn't covered whether they were going to go for two or not. And you notice that we, I mean, we're not talking about play calls here. No. We're not We're not talking about play calls because I, I hate to second guess those because you don't, you, yeah, we just don't have the information to, to know what the play call should be or what the more appropriate one would be. Here's my concern, okay? It has nothing to do with liking or disliking Brian Kelly. I don't care if it's John Smith or John Dole or whoever. John L. Smith, I would care. Yeah. <laughs> it, do, it, does, it, it, it doesn't matter who it is. It's not a personality thing. This is what's concerning. You're making decisions that are contributing to losses, that's what's disconcerting. And you can say, again, you can go back and say, well, the play was open and it should have scored. Well, the fact of the matter is, three minutes and 17 seconds after you made the decision, it became a wrong decision because now they kicked the field goal and you were chasing 15 and not 14. I like Brian Kelly's personality. I don't like his late-game decision-making. They're separate. <laughs> they <laughs> are. And I like his approach to coaching. I don't like his late-game decision I mean, they're separate things. That's, that's not what we're talking about. I mean, I think this is, is a good spin forward into the turnovers because after the game, we were all there, and, and Brian Kelly went straight to the turnovers. It was it was all about that and not about decision-making. And I feel like that's it's a bit of a cop-out to oh. me because <laughs> you're in the position to make those turnovers because you weren't prepared to play early at the beginning, and it puts you behind the eight ball early, so you have to play It's kind of this more frantic, certainly. It's, it's like if you're down 20 points in basketball, and after the game, Mike Bray would lament, well, our three-point shooting wasn't very good. Well, you had to shoot all those threes because you were down so early. It's just, and, I mean, you look at the turnovers, it's Kaiser is pressing. That's a, that's a turnover caused by you are under ex- extreme game pressure. Chris Brown fumbles because you're under extreme game pressure because you have to come back. Now, the, the Sanders and the pro-size turnovers are completely different. And if Brian Kelly, I think if Brian Kelly wanted to draw a line between these two turnovers were just careless and reckless and these two turnovers were because we were behind in the game, I would be on board with him. But to lump them all four together, I just disagree. And first, I want to say I agree with you 100%, so I won't repeat exactly what you said, even though I want to. It's kind of a waste of airwaves. But... I also have a problem with, when you said the word cop-out, I was thinking of something different. There is nothing I dislike more than when a fan or coach says, 
if not for the turnovers, we'd have won the game. If not for stupid penalties, we'd have won the game. What is the difference between a well-coached team and a poorly coached team or a championship-level group of players if it's not, I protect the ball and I don't commit stupid turnovers? Because every time a team does not commit turnovers, we describe them as well-coached. Right, exactly. If you commit six turnovers and have 600 yards, you're not a good team. You're a team that was scrambling all over the place trying to figure something out as the game went along. I don't understand how people think, if not for turnovers. It's the most important part of the game is a turnover. Well, and, and even more so in a game like that because you know turnovers are almost undoubtedly going to decide the outcome of this game because of right. the, the weather conditions. And um, and two good teams together. Well, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, so we knew that was going to decide it. Notre Dame did not protect the Notre Dame didn't catch it as well, and they didn't protect it as well as Clemson. Yeah, they didn't block as well. They didn't tackle as well. For well, that too. Important parts. That too. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think that to to spin it forward a little bit. I mean, my takeaway from this game was a lot different than Florida State last year. Um, I going into the game, the previews, I felt like this was going to be sort of like one of those Michigan performances, and it kind of was. But I still feel more optimistic about this team than I did any of those other previous losses. And it pretty much, for me, all comes down to Deshaun Kaiser because I was not surprised at all about his mentality in the game. I did not think he was going to get overwhelmed. I thought he he would grow into the game mentally, and he did. Where he surprised me and maybe even shocked me a little bit was physical talent. And that's why I asked asked Brian Kelly about that on Sunday. It's like, did did Kaiser surprise you, or did he just confirm what you already did? And Kelly's like... No, I mean he. We learned a lot about him, and I thought his his ability to hit at different levels and read out the defense as the game went on. Uh, he showed me more physically than maybe I. No, he showed me more physically definitely than what I was expecting, and that that makes me more optimistic about the rest of the season. I was impressed with his scrambling ability. I didn't know that he was he would. I don't, and people are going to say, "What are you talking about?" Because of the run, that's a design run. I, I like the way he was able to extend plays and he make plays. Great, he has yeah, great Yeah, I, I didn't realize he'd be able to extend plays that well. That's actually what I was kind of hoping for from Everett Golson all of last season. Yeah. Um, and I, I thought he really handled the ball well um, in those situations where you, you have to make a guy miss, but then you have to look upfield after you make the guy miss. And he has those nice long strides where he gobbles up yards. I, I hate to use Matt Jones, the Arkansas quarterback, as he ran a 4-4, but he, those long strides when you're that size, he does pick up yardage. You need it's like it. the other Deshaun. Right, I mean, exactly. He's, he's yeah. not fast, but he swallows up yeah. ground. I think yeah. Deshaun Kaiser is the same way. He's not fast, but he swallows yeah. up turf. I wouldn't go so far as to say that, you know, the expression that maybe I even wrote it though. <laughs> Kaiser. <laughs> Just don't say it. <laughs> Kaiser, well, okay. Kaiser's the least of your concerns. I mean, he's always good. He's still a young quarterback. He's sure. going to be a young quarterback all year. But for him to perform as well as he did most of the time in this setting, he's not going to face a more difficult setting the rest of the year than that one was. But to me, I mean, my biggest concern is the defensive spasms that come up just about, I mean, almost always, second quarter Virginia. And it's not just one drive and then you get a three and out. They're clumped together. It's two and three at a time. Fourth quarter Georgia Tech, a little bit different. I mean, you know, you're trying to run out time and you're putting different guys in. But second quarter Virginia, where they where they, they dominated for a eight, whatever, what, ten-minute segment, UMass, Three straight scoring drives, and then Clemson is right from the start of the first game. That's a greater concern to me than I mean Kaiser's poised. Was he perfect in this game? And and P and I, you and I talked about on the way home some of the words I used in our instant analysis after the game in describing Kaiser. I was a little too forgiving 
but he made the plays that allowed them to have a chance to win in the fourth quarter, and that's what I was focusing on. He's not perfect, but he's a hell of a lot more consistent than the, than the performance that you're getting from the defensive side of the ball. Yeah, no, and I, I think when you're evaluating Kaiser, you have to throw in the pick that Ben Bulwer dropped and oh, fumbled sure. that Notre Dame recovered. Right. But again, those are your pressing because you're down type of situations. Notre Dame, because it was not prepared to play defense out of the gate or offense or offense and special teams was off too it put so much pressure on Deshaun Kaiser and I thought overwhelmingly he did a good job of of shouldering a a very difficult burden in a a tough environment so I think that's why I'm more optimistic because last year the quarterback play went down as the season went on and I think there was a disconnect grew between quarterback and coaching staff I think the opposite is true now you're seeing the quarterback ascend and I think the connection between the quarterback and the coaching staff, Kelly and Mike Sanford, is only going to improve as the season goes on. So I think you're going to see continued improvement from Deshaun Kaiser. It's not going to be a straight line, but I think he's going to be much better in November than he is right I, now. I, I agree with that. And, and I think, you know, as we look forward, and I, I agree also with you, Pete, in that, I mean, I'm not, you know, just being, when you're critical of the coaching staff, what that doesn't mean they're, they're, they're going to suddenly crumble. I don't think they're going to do that. I do think they have you know, great leadership and upper-class leadership. It's concerning, though, that you've now, in uh, how many road games, I mean, you went to Arizona State and got outscored 38 to nothing in a 22-minute stretch in the first half. Um, you know, you, I, I realize you were undermanned against USC, but you were down 21 nothing at the end of the first quarter, and now you're down 14 to nothing less than seven minutes into this game. So now you're establishing a pattern where you're going on the road and you're – I mean, what? However, you want to say it. If you want to say flat, you're not prepared to play championship level football. And when you go on the road and you're playing Clemson and you're undefeated, yeah. it's a championship level game. You can't win the game in the first quarter, but you can lose it. And they did. No I mean, question. That's that's what it comes down to. It's like sure. a. It's like, and we were talking about this, and you mentioned the basketball analogy: the team that fights and scratches and claws to get back in the game, but they just don't have enough to make another play to win the game in the end. I'm not sure that that's an exact comparison because they did have enough to, to make a play and win this. But when you expend that much energy, I think it gets back to your point, Pete, that you know, you're pressing. Yeah. I think the interception you start to force things. You start to do too much, so to speak, or more than you're mm-hmm. capable of under in the conditions that they were in. Yeah, no question. All right, well that's it for segment one on Irish Illustrated Insider. As you might imagine, we have many, many questions from our readers about what happened on Saturday, so we'll get into all that next. Back to Irish Illustrated Insider. Tim O'Malley here with Pete Sampson and Tim Priester. We're at segment two, burning up the boards. Irish McCarthy asks the same question a lot of people have been asking. Why not a pass run option in the second two-point conversion? The offensive line had proved they couldn't get a push, yet they tried a straight run. In talking to Sean Kaiser after the game, he said there was a passing component to him. I asked him how many receiving options did he have on that play. He said it was just one. So I guess you could say it was a limited pass option to it, but as you guys were talking about, it was more... Pre-snap. Pre-snap, yeah. exactly. It was decision to... It, Kaiser reads the defense, if they had the right numbers in the box, which was six. You got six on six, keep the ball, run quarterback power. If they had more in the box that you couldn't handle, then he had a passing option. And looking at the replay, it's hard, it's it shows... Hard to know, that, yeah, it's hard to know what the pass option was, so yeah. it makes me think that... But they did get the six on six that yeah, they were looking for. It was for. absolutely a six on six with Kaiser being the seventh. 
So if you can get a hat on all those hats, which is very complicated against a really good rushing defense. It's, I've watched the replay enough that I still don't know how it was supposed to be blocked correctly for it to work. I you know, asked Nick Martin after the game about it, and he said, look, if we do this rightly, do this correctly, we're in overtime here. It's hard watching the replay to understand where it broke down. There could it, uh, there may have been multiple breakdowns in the play. Uh, it's you know, is it the Martin Elmer combination block on Christian Wilkins? Is it who McGlinchey picked out? Is it you know, did Pro Size and McGlinchey cross? I did Elmer actually get to his right guy who was a uh, number, number eleven on the outside um, yeah. in the bound in outside on the flight. I, I don't know. Um, I don't know how it was supposed to look ideally, but um, yeah, Nick Martin was adamant that if, if it was blocked well, to score. Well, and the three of us just sat here, watched it together, and we were slow, slow framing everything, slow motion all the way through, and we couldn't exactly decide what Elmer's job was. Yeah. Maybe live, we thought Elmer lost, but I don't. I don't think that anymore. Necessarily. Live, I thought he lost. Ultimately, though, the first contact that Kaiser makes is with Elmer. He, I mean, he's kind. He's, he wasn't throw. He wasn't thrown back into his lap. Mm-hmm. But as Kaiser turns it upfield and tries to progress into the end zone, his first contact is with Elmer, and ultimately Elmer Drills. loses it. No, but he, I mean, he he ultimately lost the one on one battle with with uh, Blanks. No, he plowed Blanks. Like, he loses inside. He loses his combo block. Okay, Mark, I, the wrong, I got the Christian wrong guy. Wilkins, Clemson's yeah. defensive tackle. I think we we all look at. Notre Dame plays, and just from a Notre Dame perspective, but Christian. <laughs> There's Wilkins, another team out there. Yeah, and Christian Wilkins is a really good part of that team, and he he won. But he he won his matchup against Elmer and Martin, and blew up the play because he made sure that there was no hole. It was just sort of like a sliding door that was closing, yeah. and by the time Kaiser Kaiser could get to where he was, I think was supposed to be, that door had been closed. And I want to answer from um, a lot of a lot of people have been asking this a similar question: Why not a run pass option? There was a pre-snap run-pass option, but I think what a lot of Irish fans want to know is why not a run-pass option in that you you give the look of a passing play like we were just discussing. In other words, they wanted to see Kaiser take the snap, roll out on a passing play, have three passing, have three receivers, maybe a throwback fourth, and have the ability to run in. That's the question about run-pass option that we're ignoring, but that's not the call, so we're not analyzing what Brian Kelly could have called. Well, I guess the point is... We don't have a problem with the play call because they got what they wanted, they went for it, and they lost. Christian Watkins made them lose. This question, I think, is a lot of people are asking, is it better to keep passing because you pass yeah. all the way down the field and Kaiser could always scramble it in? The, the quote, play that I had in my head, we talked about this, you know, where, you, where Kaiser rolls right or even looks like he's going to run right and then you slip a tight end off the left. Right portion of the, uh, the the formation but if it was a six on six look then they probably would have had something yeah, like that yeah. covered. I, I didn't have uh, the play was unconventional to me but it wasn't like wow that's just insane why would you do that it was it was just it was different it kind of cut against the grain I think you have to factor into the fact that Notre Dame's receivers had not been playing well right pretty much most of the game so it was Brown Hunter and Fuller out there they all had drops uh, the weather was not great and Kaiser is 230 pounds, and you've got a really good offensive line. They just, it just didn't happen for him. And again, this is another one of those instances. This is one of my pet peeves. If he scores, there, I'm, I'm almost 100 percent sure we do not hear or read one person say, "Why did they call that play?" Yeah, it worked, but it would be a touchdown. You wouldn't even, you wouldn't even think anything of of, of the play call at that point. This is personal, but personal preference. But I think the only honest play call that you would 
you'd say that's crazy would just be handing it straight to CJ Procise in that situation when it hadn't worked all yeah, day. And like, not even in a read option. Right, right. Like that, that, other than that, I, I mean, I think, you know, they did. Clemson made a better play than Notre Dame did. All right, Lou for Prez. Deshaun Kaiser showed a lot of heart in his game, but it looks like the zones in the first half read, he was he was able to scramble before making his second read. Are you seeing his ability to make progressions to different wide receivers throughout a play? Um, I think we saw a, a better view of that prior to this game. I mean, obviously there were, there were some some receivers that were open to the throw to uh, Corey Robinson at the end of the first half, which should have been caught anyway. CJ, I believe it was C.J. Procise that was open right down the middle of the field. Fuller, so, yeah, it was Fuller. Oh, it was yeah. Fuller in that. Okay, so um, and I, I think Procise in another situation yeah. where where uh, where he was open and he didn't find him. I don't. So I don't think he did a real good job with his progressions, um, zeroing in on receivers. You know, I, I, again, I think sometimes that's overblown because you're going to zero in on the receiver that you see breaking to get open, and you know where you're going to put the football to him. So. Um, you know he's not he's not a finished product man he's not he's not there yet but I really think that with each passing week I think we see evidence of him getting better at all facets of the game yeah and I, I thought he grew into that during the game I mean Notre Dame's success in the passing game was more sort of slower developing underneath roots that you know had you had to have Chris Brown come across the formation right. there and that took some patience for Deshaun Kaiser to read that out and, and stick with it. And I mean, I think in the completion of Brown on the last drive of the game where he ends up picking maybe like 20, 25 yeah. yards, um, he has to come across a defensive end who's making his own drop. And but I think Kaiser was, was aware as the game went on. I, but I think also a lot of that credit goes to Sanford and Kelly being like, okay, we have to adjust our pass the game. Here's how we're going to do it. This is what it's going to require you to do. And I thought Kaiser, for the most part, did a nice job delivering that. And I think another way of looking at Lou for Prez's question is, are we seeing the ability? He's got the ability to do it. He's going to progress in his ability to make progressions, and that's probably what he's asking. Is it going to get better? And I definitely think I, it's going I, to get better. I definitely yeah. think it will. PM Moore, 1995. Is it time to elevate Equinemius St. Brown to Corey Robinson's spot as the big wide receiver? Corey just seems to have regressed tremendously. Yeah, I mean, it's... Definitely worth giving St. Brown a look, and if Torrey Hunter can play all three positions, which is something that uh, Brian Kelly has mentioned a few times this season, then I think he'd start with Hunter, but make sure St. Brown is active. Um, I don't know. I don't know what to make of sort of where Corey Robinson is right now. Um, I, I, I mean, I felt like he had a lot to prove this season, but th- this is. Not what I saw coming at all. Yeah, you mentioned a couple times in the summer. I think you were way ahead of this, but as you said, not to this level. That he had, <laughs> you had Robinson is kind of regressing with some other people ascending. Chris yeah, Brown, I that type think, of thing. They had, uh, Chris Brown was going to move ahead of Robinson, and but I mean, I still thought Robinson was going to be a productive receiver. I sure. just thought it, it was going to be sort of a, a repeat of his sophomore year, and it, it hasn't been in a negative way. I mean, it's not even a repeat of his freshman year. Yeah. No, even. it isn't. He has regressed, and maybe the knee is is uh, an issue here. I mean, just just to be clear, Equinemius St. Brown was playing X. He's buying Will Fuller, right? Okay, so I mean, he and I know, and he's he's just a freshman, so I don't know that you can just flip a switch now and say, okay, go over there because he's probably been making progress at the X. Obviously, he's not going to get a ton of snaps be, behind Will Fuller, but there, but that would require a, a, a bit of an adjustment. Right, and the Hunter, you know, Hunter has played more, obviously more slot than anything, but he also played more X. He was behind Fuller last year than W. But they talk about Hunter knowing them all. He talked about knowing them all twice in the preseason. 
I think your best rotation right now is having those four guys, Brown, Fuller, Hunter, and Carlisle, where Hunter can, for lack of a better word, back up every position. I mean, he seems yeah. to be the focus more than Carlisle, but Carlisle's not going anywhere. That's a good four-receiver rotation, and they're not going to give up on Corey Robinson, but he's going to have to start proving it. He's going to get another chance. I mean, I, sure. I think it's important to have Corey Robinson be involved because he can be a weapon in the red zone. And remember, last year, he would disappear for the whole first half against teams, and all of a sudden, they'd be trying to scramble to come back in a game, North Carolina, Stanford... That's when they targeted Corey Robinson, Florida, and he'd be yeah. getting first downs. People remember the great Florida State game, but he didn't usually have great full games. He had would have big moments at the end of halves. Right. They need him in the mix, but, I mean, I would think he's fifth at this right. point. Sterling James asks, how was it that Clemson receivers were able to hold on to the ball? Was it Nike versus Under Armour equipment issue? How did these sure-handed Nordian players drop or lose so many footballs. I think they just got. I mean, they got psyched out by the conditions. Yeah, know? I mean the conditions. Make no mistake. I you know I know we're we're all we're sitting in the press box is open air, but we were dry and sitting at home. It's even more. They were very very yeah. difficult conditions. I mean, it was raining hard a large majority of the time. Hunter's clearly was a concentration drop of all of them. He just looked to start running. He, he yeah. was wide open. He looked to start running. Fuller could either be concentration or I don't want to get hit in the back because he had to kind of get up a little bit for a play, not know where people are. It was probably more concentration or not. He has concentration drops, Will Fuller. I mean, that's yeah. that's, part oh, yeah. of his, that's part of his makeup. Corey Robinson should have caught the touchdown and should have caught the two-point conversion. Those are both tougher than Fuller and Hunter's. But you got, that's his go, that's his calling card. I mean, that's what you got well, he to make bar- the play. He, the, the two-point conversion Robinson dropped, he, he came close to whiffing. I mean, it barely made contact with his left hand. Yeah, it, I mean, it, I think it the conditions hurt. Notre Dame more than Clemson. Yes. And I just think that's Notre Dame not... But I think that goes back to more Notre Dame just mentally not being there all the time on Saturday night. And so is that is that weather-related or is that sort of preparation mindset-related? Well, we're, probably, being asked, we're being asked whether it was equipment-related. Yeah, it's definitely not equipment-related. Because, I mean, look, Clemson didn't fall down any more than Notre Dame did on Saturday. Both teams had great cleats. That, yeah. I mean, that field was, was great. So it's... Notre Dame didn't, does not have a glove equipment issue with wet balls. The poor carpenter that blames his tool, Pete. You yes, not blame your tools. You have to catch the ball. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Our final question, and this is the one actually the most important. MR, well, I guess is Martin Keith. Do you think an 11-1 Notre Dame team will make the playoffs? I mean, it depends more on Stanford and USC than it, it does on Notre Dame in a lot of ways. And that's... The what you lost on Saturday, you did not lose your season on Saturday. You lost your safety net to your season on Saturday. Um, so what Notre like because Georgia Tech has checked out entirely. Uh, Notre Dame needs USC and Stanford to keep winning. You need to beat both of them and go eleven and one, obviously. And then you probably need well, you need one of them to beat the other in the Pac twelve championship game. Like if you're just if, don't get too involved in who's beating whom yet, but. You just need to follow Notre Dame, USC, and Stanford. That's the key to Notre Dame making the playoff. Well, then also as it relates to, to other teams, I mean, Mississippi, Georgia, and UCLA lost for the first time this past weekend. Are they going to run the table the rest of the way or lose a second time? And there's so many other variables involved with, you know, when it comes time to make a decision for the four playoff teams, how many combined undefeated and one-loss teams are there? I mean, that that's going to play a big role. And, and we did talk about this after the game, you know, when it's 21 to 3 and Cole Luke makes an interception, Notre Dame's on the verge of going down by 25 points. If the game, you know, if Notre Dame doesn't make the comeback in the fourth quarter, they're 
probably yep. out of the playoff running at that point. Uh, but by making it, uh, you know, a close game and losing by two, okay, it's a little bit more forgiving of a loss. I wrote about this this morning. This is going to be remembered as a two-point loss that Notre Dame could have won on a two-point conversion at the end. No one's going to remember the fact that they got bulldozed in the first quarter. They're going to remember 24-22. And here's the thing. Let, let's just, for the sake of argument, say there's 15 to 16 teams in contention right now, logically, for the playoffs. Right. 13 of them are going to lose a game. Well, yeah, People I mean, just keep losing in college football I mean, in October, you, November. You mentioned UCLA. Well, they play Stanford next Thursday, and they play, UC, okay. they play okay. USC so, later. So, yes, I mean, that's an overlap. So that's why, that's why if you're Notre Dame strategically, you have to figure out, okay, what conference can we pick off? You can't pick off the ACC anymore unless Clemson goes in the tank. You're probably not going to pick off the Big Ten because you have Ohio State and Michigan State. You're probably not going to pick off the SEC. You need probably Baylor to lose. And then you need USC and Stanford to so kind of run the table. The only one you really have control over, some, is the Pac-12. That's the that's the conference Notre Dame can still climb above. They they mm-hmm. they've lost to the ACC this year just virtue of right. only Clemson, uh, and the, the SEC eleven and one Notre Dame is not going to get in above the eleven and one SEC champion or the twelve and one no. SEC champion. Nor do I think Notre Dame at eleven one is probably going to get in over eleven and one Baylor or eleven and one TCU. So that leaves the Pac twelve. You need the Pac twelve to really get hot with Stanford and USC, and then you need you, you need help in another conference. I just have no idea what one that would. This be. is probably a question for about three or four weeks from now. Clemson loses one game later in the year, later in the year. So going to November, do they get in over Notre Dame? No, I mean it's the you had the it's the TCU Baylor yeah, dynamic from last year where I doubt it. the team that won the game was ranked below the team that it right. beat. So it's I guess it depends on what let's let's say Clemson goes out and just lays an egg against North Carolina State right. or somebody like that. Like, clearly possible. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, because offensively they could they could throw up. Ten points it's like, at any point. Yeah, I mean, we had talked in the preview. Like, if Chad Morris is still the offensive coordinator, Notre Dame would have lost thirty-five <laughs> yeah. to three. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it's in Notre Dame's best interest to me if Clemson wins out, and then you have this great loss to a thirteen and zero ACC champ, while you've also beaten the Pac twelve champ. That'd still be a pretty nice resume at eleven one for Notre Dame. That's an interesting way of looking at it, actually. I didn't think. I was thinking that Clemson kind of choking one off along the way, and the ACC not having well, a real they, champion is uh, something yeah. that they I think you need Clemson to lose twice. I tell you, what Notre Dame really needs to do is uh, beat Navy this week, and on Thursday we will start talking about Notre Dame versus Navy. You can't, you, hey, you can't get in the playoffs uh, after a loss in, in one week. So um, go out and beat Navy. Nord, look, Dave, they got the blueprint. To stop the triple option, that's a little bit different. It's not as spread out as Georgia Tech's was. But uh, I think Notre Dame fans probably go into this game feeling a lot better about playing Navy, although they are undefeated. And Keenan Reynolds just like, you know, he's he's scoring touchdowns in sleep. Problem with Navy is they just keep coming. Yeah, they do. They do. They do. <laughs> just keep coming okay. at you. And we'll, and, and we'll be back. Uh, we'll, we'll get into Navy week here. We'll be back on Thursday. You might slip, you might slide, you might stumble and fall by the roadside. But don't you let nobody drag your spirit down.